So this past week, I spent some time down in Pennsylvania, uh, traveled down to a college in uh, Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, called University of Valley Forge. I went down there to speak in some classes and to speak in some chapels, and my friend Jared Berry, uh, he came with me. He also went down to teach and to preach. And as we were driving to Philadelphia, down 81 South, uh, I said to him, you know, we're only 45 minutes from Philly. And he looked at me and said, I've never had a cheesesteak from Philly. And I was like, all right, we know what our mission is. They think we're coming to speak. We're coming to get a cheesesteak. And so that was like our number one mission was like, I got to get Jared a cheesesteak, a Philadelphia authentic cheesesteak. And I know there's a lot of debate as to where to go. My favorite is Tony Luke's, uh, partly because there's free parking. And uh, I love that. But uh, I love Tony Luke's. And so turns out we didn't have time to get into Philly. But right near our hotel was the King of Prussia Mall, which is actually the largest mall uh, in the country. And King of Prussia Mall has four food courts. That's how big it is four food courts, and in one of, the food, four, uh, one of the food courts, there is a Tony Luke's, and I know because I've been there several times, and so I said to him one day, all right, we're not going to get into Philly, but there's a Tony Luke's in this food court. Let's get there. Now, we drive there. Here's the thing about this mall. It's so big that you have to pass by so many good food options to get to the one you want. So many. I mean, there's four different food courts. You have to, you have to walk past a, a, a Chipotle, a, a, a Chip, why am I forgetting the word of that? Chick-fil-A, a Chick-fil-A. No, that's not the word I was looking for. What's the Mexican place? Chipotle, Chipotle, Chipotle. That's like Chick-fil-A. That's like if Chick-fil-A and Chipotle had a baby, we'd have Chipotle. Actually, I may have just, the spirit may have just helped me discover uh, an idea for a, a new restaurant. Fried chicken tacos, Chipotle. Chipotle, wow, wow. Uh, we walked past a Chipotle Sorry, Jason Foster. I know you love Chipotle. Uh, we also had to walk past the Five Guys. Sorry, Tony Briggs. I know you love Five Guys. And we also did have to walk past a Chick-fil-A. Sorry, Jesus. I know that's his favorite restaurant. <laughs> but we, uh, we walked by all these places that had all this yummy food that would normally be a distraction to us, but we were focused. We had a mission. We got to get to Tony Luke's. So we got to Tony Luke's. He ordered a cheesesteak. I ordered the roast pork with extra sharp provolone and broccoli rob. That's my favorite. And we went halvesies. I had half of his. He had half of mine. And it was, it was delicious. But what, I, what I noticed was that when you have a mission, you can walk past things that otherwise would distract you, right? When you have a mission, you can go past things that are maybe good, but they're not the best. And here at Trinity, we have a mission that keeps us focused. And our mission statement is this, that we exist as a church to make disciples for the glory of our God and for the good of our community. So this is our mission. This is what we are focused on. And where do we get this mission statement from? We didn't just make it up. We didn't just think it up. We got this from the scriptures. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. It's called the Great Commission. We read this last week. Jesus gathers his disciples after he's died, after he's resurrected, and before he's ascended to the right-hand side of the Father, he gets them together for some final instructions, and he says this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we talked about last week how it looks like it says go and make, but when you study it out in the original language, only the word make is a command. 
Only the verb make is in the imperative form. The verb go is actually a participle. So the best way to read this instruction from Jesus is this. As you go, make disciples. Or in your going. Or as you go from here to there. So that's why our mission is what it is, to make disciples. Now just to recap, give me 60 seconds to recap last Sunday. We defined discipleship. And we said discipleship is this. Discipleship is moving from unbelief to belief in the gospel in every area of life, changing what you love and how you live, okay? Discipleship is moving from unbelief to belief in the gospel in every area of your life, changing what you love and how you live. And we unpacked that last Sunday. If you missed last Sunday's message, please go find it online and listen to it. It's such an important series that we're walking through here in September. And then we talked about how do we make disciples? And we said it's a very simple equation, actually. Here's how we make disciples. Number one, you live a life worth sharing. And number two, you share it generously and intentionally. So the first half of the equation, live a life worth sharing. And then the second half of the equation, now share it generously and intentionally. And last week, we spent most of our time looking at the first half of the equation. And we answered the question, what is a life worth sharing look like? What does a disciple look like? And we learned that disciples are leavers, they're learners, and they are lovers. But this week, this morning, we're going to answer a different question. We're going to look a little closer at the second half of the equation, and we're going to look at this question. Where do we make disciples? The where of discipleship. Or what environments should we intentionally be placing ourselves in if we want to become disciples, if we want to follow Jesus? And we're going to look at a text together. This is in 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you want to open your Bibles or flip in your notes, I think it's on your handout as you walked in. 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, this is one of the last letters that he wrote. He's in Rome. He's awaiting certain death. And he has a son in the faith named Timothy. And Timothy is a pastor of a church in Ephesus. And Paul writes these very heartfelt words to Timothy because Timothy is discouraged. Now, Timothy is young, so he feels like he's not qualified enough to lead this growing church in this community in Ephesus. Timothy's church is being invaded by people who are uh, perverting the gospel and preaching other things. And so Timothy's uh, leadership is being called into question. And so in the midst of all that, Paul writes these two letters to Timothy. And the second one, in, ver- in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he says this. You then, my child. Well, Timothy is not his, his natural child. He's not his, he's not his physical son. It's his spiritual son. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And now he introduces three metaphors. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is our main text for this morning, but let me just back up for a second and give you the context for these instructions that Paul is giving to Timothy. In the previous chapter, in chapter 1, verse 14, Paul instructs Timothy this. He says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within you, guard the good deposit 
entrusted to you. And here's what Paul is saying to Timothy. Guard the gospel. Fight for the gospel. That the gospel message would be pure, undiluted, and delivered to people who need to hear it and receive it. Guard the gospel. And now, in light of the command to guard the gospel, in our main text this morning, Paul's saying, here's how you do that. Now, when it comes to guarding something, there's two different approaches. Some people guard things, and by guarding it, what they try to do is they keep it hidden for themselves. Every now and then, we'll, uh, we'll be cleaning my, uh, one of our girls' bedrooms, and by we, I mean Aaron, but uh, we'll, be cl- we'll be cleaning, we'll be cleaning. Uh, that's, that's just because I'm, I'm not a very good cleaner. She doesn't trust me to clean. If, listen, if you're bad at something, people stop asking you to do it. There's a life secret right there. Just don't be good at anything. No one, I'm kidding. That's very lazy. Um, but uh, sometimes uh, we'll be cleaning our kids' bedrooms, and we find these little piles of candy and chocolate you know, and now we feed them well. I mean, they're, they're well fed. There's no concern. Uh, but they are guarding it. Why? For themselves, right? And that's one way to guard something is to keep it hidden for yourself. But there's a whole nother way to think about guarding something. Not keep it hidden for yourself, but keep it pure for others. Keep it right. Keep it true. Keeping it real for others, Earlier this week, I was watching this new, this new show on the Food Network called Baked, and this gentleman visited a, one of the most famous pizza places in Los Angeles. And the guy who owns it, his name is Vito. He's from New York City, uh, but he's in L.A. making New York City pizza, and he's been there a long time. And what was very interesting to me about this Italian guy, Vito, was that when his family came over from Italy to America many years ago, they brought this little jar of yeast with them. It was their special yeast that they used to make their own uh, pizza dough. And the yeast is 500 to 600 years old. And this is still the yeast that they use today at that pizza shop to make their dough. And it's such a valued yeast that people have tried to steal it. People have tried to break into the pizzeria and steal the yeast. The yeast is in like a vault at all times, so that nobody can get to it. And Vito is so protective and cares so much for the purity and the quality of this yeast that he actually every day takes the yeast for a walk outside. (laughs) He holds it in his arms and he takes it for a walk around the block because the yeast, if you know anything about yeast, it needs sunlight and it needs some air to really keep growing, to really keep developing. And as he walks the yeast around the block, he has bodyguards around him to protect him because people will come and try and steal this valuable yeast. This is an example of guarding, this is an example of craziness, but there's also an example of, of guarding something, not to keep it hidden for yourself, but to keep it pure for others. He doesn't want the yeast to be compromised because it will affect the pizza. And when Paul says to Timothy, you have to guard the gospel, he's certainly not saying keep it hidden for yourself. That's the last thing he's saying. But what is he saying? Keep it pure for others. Guard the gospel. And this passage that we're looking at this morning in 2 Timothy 2 is so important because it's on the heels of the command to guard the gospel. And now Paul is kind of instructing Timothy, here's how you keep the gospel pure. Here's how you do it. So we're going to learn something very important about discipleship in this text. And really, this is something we learn about discipleship throughout all of Scripture, especially if you study the life of Jesus. And it's this, discipleship happens face to face and shoulder to shoulder. Discipleship happens 
face to face and shoulder to shoulder. Can you humor me and say that with me? Ready? Discipleship happens face to face and shoulder to shoulder. Good. Now this time, turn to the person next to you when we get to face to face, look at them face to face and say face to face. And then when we get shoulder to shoulder, look straight ahead and say it. All right, we're going to do a little exercise this morning. Here we go. All right. Discipleship happens. Turn face to face. Now look at me and shoulder to shoulder. Awesome. Good. Looks like a cult in here right now. You guys are just doing whatever I say. Perfect. Um, Discipleship happens face to face and shoulder to shoulder. And we're going to break that down specifically two categories underneath each of those. So when it's all said and done this morning, you're going to have four different environments that you should be in. Four different, the four different wheres, W-H-E-R-E, of Discipleship. This morning is a little more of a teaching, so uh, hopefully you can stick with me. The first one is this. When we say discipleship happens face-to-face and shoulder-to-shoulder, the first one is face-to-face vertical or face-to-face up and down. And when we say that discipleship happens face-to-face vertical, what we're talking about is your alone time with Jesus. This is where it starts. Jesus taught us in John chapter 15 that if you abide in me, you can grow and bear much fruit. But then Jesus also says in one of the most haunting verses of all of scripture, apart from me, you can do nothing. So this is, why, this is where we have to start. Because if we don't have this environment in our lives, if we're not abiding in Christ, if we're not getting alone with Christ, if we're not spending time with Christ, then none of the other ones are going to work. So what does time alone with Jesus look like? Here's some components, scripture reading, right? Prayer, reading maybe from a devotional. If you were here last uh, Sunday, you would have received this book uh, from Bill Kirk. This is your uh, daily devotional. This would be an example of something that you could read every uh, single day. For some people, devotional time includes journaling. How many of you like to journal? As you, as you read and pray, you like to write things down, journaling. Some people, it's singing. Did you know that silence is also a part of a spiritual discipline of just stilling our souls and just waiting and listening. Now, why do we need this? It says right in the beginning of our text, Paul says to Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Why do we need our time alone with Jesus? Here's why. Because we need to be strengthened by his grace. We need to receive his grace. You know what spiritual disciplines are? They're tools to position our hearts to receive the grace of God. And we need this time alone with Jesus, this face-to-face vertical time. Now, what does this require? Three things. This requires effort and determination. How many of you have learned, don't have to raise your hand, this doesn't happen on accident. This is not easy. It's embarrassingly hard, if I'm honest, for, for long-time Christians. Like, we know this is important. We know it starts there. But how easy is it to fill our lives with so many other things and not have our face-to-face time with Jesus? This requires effort and determination. And that's why Paul uses these three illustrations in the text. He talks first about a soldier. Now, what does a soldier have? A soldier has sole devotion or primary devotion to what matters most. In fact, in this culture at this time, if you were a soldier, you were not allowed to marry. You could not marry during your term of service, and you served for over 20 years. Now, half of the people back then didn't even survive out of their time of service. This is the sort of devotion that soldiers had. This is what Paul's talking about. This is what he's calling to mind as he's challenging Timothy. You need to have the devotion of a soldier where you are focused on the one thing. That takes effort and determination. Then he talks about the athlete. 
playing the game by the rules. And this is an understanding of what's being asked of you and how to accomplish it. And also, you got to play by the rules or else you will disqualify yourself. So Paul's saying there's a way in which we follow Jesus that's so inconsistent that we actually disqualify ourselves from receiving the grace that we need to be strong. And then the last metaphor he used here was he did soldier, athlete, and then farmer. And it's the willingness to work hard, listen, even when the results are not immediate. Any of you plant stuff? Are the results immediate? Can you imagine going out today, planting? I don't know what you would plant at this time of the year because I don't know anything about it. But imagine you're planting something and you go and you plant it and, you, and the next morning you go out and you see nothing and you get down your hands and knees and you start yelling at that seed. What's wrong with you? You're screaming at it. Come on. I, I did all this work yesterday. Where's the growth today? And sometimes spiritual disciplines, we, we stop doing them because we're not getting the rewarding uh, feelings out of them. We're like, I don't feel God right now. I'm not feeling his presence, and this isn't really working, and my life isn't immediately getting better, and I don't really feel happier, and my kids still are, are disobedient, and my, and my job, my boss is still annoying, and so we're kind of saying it's not really worth it, but the farmer keeps working hard even when the fruits and the results are not immediate. And so we have to put in effort and determination. Dallas Willard said this, the grace of God is not opposed to effort. The grace of God is opposed to earning. We don't earn through our works, but we also don't say, well, then I'll put no effort in because I don't want to risk earning. No, no, no. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. It requires effort. The second thing it requires, by the way, is practice and imitation. If you're going to get good at something, you sometimes have to watch other people do it first, don't you? And then you have to keep practicing. Two of my good friends just opened up a fit body boot camp on Erie Boulevard in, uh, in, over in DeWitt. Now, I just gave them a plug. Now they can leave me alone. So they opened up, they opened up a gym, and they just this past week, they opened up this gym. And so they were doing like a, a sort of beta launch of it, beta trials of it a couple weeks ago, and my friend Yon calls me up, and he says, hey, David, why don't you come out and, and do one of these classes with us? I was like, yo, are you, are you crazy? Like, have you seen me? Like, I've never done anything like that in my life. He goes, no, it's just like a, it's just a little 30-minute workout. It's not a big deal. Like, it's, anybody can do it. Like, anybody can do it. Now he's appealing to my pride because I'm like, well, if anybody can do it. So I drive out there to do it, and I sign up for Fit Body Boot Camp. And the way it basically works, and it is a really effective workout, but the way it works out is there's different stations around the room. And they move you from station to station. And at each station, you have two different exercises, and you do one for 30 seconds, you do the next one for 30 seconds, and you go back and forth three times. And you have 10 seconds in between the 30-second exercises to breathe, you know, which for me is like just not passing out, those 10 seconds. And then, and then they move you to the next station, right? And so I, I did it. And, and, and I'm a little proud about this because I only needed one of the exercises modified for me. Like they can modify all the exercises to make it easier on you. And I did like, I did 10 of them and only needed one of them, one of them modified. So I was feeling pretty good. I mean, I was struggling at the end, but um, I left the gym, got in the car, and on my way home, driving up 41, I got really nervous, and I thought one of two things is about to happen. I'm either about to vomit all over this car, or I'm going to lose consciousness and drive this car into the side of 41. Like, I was that nervous. I felt that terrible. My head was spinning, and my stomach was turning upside down. I was like, this is the worst. And then I get home. It's about a 25-minute drive. I drive home 25 minutes. I get home. I walk in, and I lay on the couch for 20 minutes just letting the world make sense again, <laughs> like just letting everything 
kind of get okay again. And uh, my friend was like, so what do you think? Something you'd want to do again? (laughs) I was like, never, never, no. And I said to him, I can't, here's my biggest issue. I can't recover from that. Like the next day I had to go down the stairs sideways, one step at a time. Like I went to the YMCA the next morning, which is more my speed. And uh, I went to the basketball court to try to shoot hoops. And I couldn't even feel the ball in my hand. I had no clue where it was going. I mean, no clue at all how far it was going to go when I shot it because my triceps were so messed up from the workout. And they had us doing, so I, I, I don't do things like squats. And they had us doing squats over and over and over. So all of a sudden, my, for four days, my thighs didn't work. Like I told you, like the only time I squat is when there's something low in the fridge that I have to, <laughs> I have to go down and get. But I don't, I don't normally do squats. And this is what they said to me. They said, listen, you got to stick with it you got to keep doing it because your body eventually does get used to it and your recovery time shortens and shortens and shortens. And I'll take their word for it. I'm not going to find out. But here's what I think. Sometimes when we try to do spiritual disciplines, we say it's uncomfortable. It's awkward. I'm I'm not feeling anything. It's actually clunky and it feels faked and it feels forced and I don't want to be a faked forced person so I'm just not going to do it and I'm just telling you it's the same way you're going to have to stick with it you're going to have to stick with it and you're going to have to develop a pattern of practice so that eventually it does begin to become normative and you need to learn from other people when I was doing those different exercises I watched the people around me so I could know how to do those exercises properly so I wouldn't hurt myself and maybe you need to position yourself near someone who has regular spiritual disciplines and say I just want to learn what do you do in your alone time with God. So it requires effort. It requires practice. The third thing this requires is, and, and this society hates this one, this requires slowing down. You've got to slow down if you're going to do this. You know, a lot of us don't like to slow down, but how does, how does that work out when it comes to getting to know people, to really having a relationship with somebody? You can't say to somebody that you just met, hurry up and get to know me, right? You can't rush it. You can't, in fact, rushing, busyness, never slowing down is an enemy of intimacy. And if we're gonna have this face-to-face vertical time with Jesus, we're gonna have to be willing to slow down, to slow down. In Luke 5, Jesus is getting very famous And the report of his power is beginning to spread and the crowds are coming to hear him preach and they're getting healed of their diseases. And in the midst of it, right in verse 16, it says, it doesn't say, so Jesus filled his schedule up with more speaking opportunities. So Jesus booked his day full. So Jesus couldn't say no to them because he knew they needed him. It says, but Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. And this is all I really need to say about this point. If Jesus needed this, If the Son of God, if fully God, fully man, the man God, Jesus, needed to get alone and have face-to-face time with his Father, then how in the world can we think that we can get away without it? We can't. We need this. So practically, how do we do this? Here's five steps. Number one, you got to pick a time. You got to pick a time. If you just say, when I have time, I'll do it, it won't happen. You've got to pick a time. And that may mean getting up a little earlier to give yourself a little time. It may mean stopping doing something that you're currently doing so you have that time. So number one, make a plan. Or number one, pick a time. Number two, make a plan. Don't just open up your Bible willy-nilly and be like, I'm just going to see whatever. 
No, what are you going to read? And if you need help with that, we can help you with that. There's all sorts of reading plans online now and apps on your phones that can help you, but you need to have a plan. What are you going to read and what are you going to pray about and create a prayer list? Number three, set a goal. How much and how long are you going to read and pray? And let me just say this. Sometimes people get so inspired when they hear challenges like this, and they're like, I'm going to start praying an hour every day. If you're not praying at all right now, it's very unlikely you're going to all of a sudden start praying an hour every day. If God's Spirit helps you do it, God bless you. But most likely, you need to take some baby steps. So if you're not praying at all, say, tomorrow I'm going to pray for five to ten minutes. If you're not reading your Bible at all, say, tomorrow I'm going to read one chapter, not one book of the Bible. And let that sort of uh, spiritual muscle memory develop as you practice. Pick a time, make a plan, set a goal. Number four, count the cost. It's going to cost you something. Some of you are going to have to uh, spend less time doing this or doing that. And then lastly, share it with someone else. If you just do it on your own and you don't ask somebody else into your journey, then there's no accountability, right? Isn't that how it works? If you try to go to the gym by yourself and it's early in the morning, you're like, I don't really want to, and you, you hit snooze. But if you're meeting somebody else at the gym, then what? You go, because there's accountability, all right? Face-to-face. And final thought on this, what's our motivation for doing this? When I was young, my motivation for reading my Bible and praying was all wrong. And maybe you can relate to this. When I was young, my motivation for praying and reading my Bible was to remind God of my goodness. God, I hope you're paying attention. I'm doing my stuff today. But you know what it is for me now? Now it's not reminding God of my goodness. It's reminding me of his goodness. That's why we need this. You know why? Because we forget. We forget. We forget his goodness. We forget his sovereignty. And we worry. And we get nervous. And we're so uh, discontent with things. Why? Because we forget. So we go to the scriptures to remember. Okay. Face-to-face vertical. The second environment that you need to place yourself in is face-to-face horizontal. Did you notice that Paul called Timothy his child? And I said it, not his natural child, not his son, but his spiritual child. And Paul and Timothy, if you, if you really want to look at this more, read the beginning of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, where you see the nature of Paul and Timothy's relationship, where, where, where Paul is saying things to Timothy like, my beloved child, I pray for you day and night, and I remember our tearful departure. I know your life. I know your story. He knew Timothy's mom by name and grandmother by name. He says, I've been involved in your growth and in your development. And many of us, we have the face-to-face time with Jesus, one-on-one with Jesus, but we don't have any face-to-face time horizontal with somebody else a one-on-one discipling relationship, or maybe you might call it mentoring, or a popular term right now is spiritual coaching. But who is the one person in your life that you go to to have difficult conversations? That asks you, that you've given that person the permission to ask you hard conversations about your spiritual condition and about the rhythms of your life. And this is so important because this is someone who really knows you. And by the way, one-on-one is different than a small group. You know you answer, you answer questions differently one-on-one than you do in small groups. You know that, right? Because when you're in a small group, when you answer a question, who are you thinking of? You're thinking of multiple people in the room and what they're going to think when they hear your answer. But when you're one-on-one with someone that you trust, it changes. You're brutally honest. You can tell the truth. And so when you're one-on-one with someone, there's three major advantages to it. Number one, there's nowhere to hide. 
What are you going to do? Just sit there and not say anything? There's nowhere to hide one-on-one. Secondly, that person can ask you hard questions without it being awkward because there's other people listening. And the third advantage to this environment is that the application to your heart is obviously very personalized because it's all about you and them and their relationship. Now, how often should this happen? The first one, face-to-face vertical, every day. That's when it should happen, really, every day. This one, it'd be unrealistic to say this would happen every day. Or maybe even every week is unrealistic. But you should have somebody in your life that you're having conversations with at least once a month. Just begin to schedule out. Say, hey, once a month. Now, how, how do we do this? You have to find a friend that you know, that you trust, that loves Jesus, that's serving Jesus. They don't necessarily have to be even more mature than you in Christ, in, in, your, in your opinion. Just someone that is willing to say, hey, I'll, I'll talk with you once a month. I'll, we can have a half-hour phone call. We can get together and have coffee once a month. And the point of that conversation, you both know going into that conversation, we're not going to talk about sports and fantasy football and the last restaurant we ate at. That's all the things I talk about, actually, now that I think about it. But we're we're going to actually ask each other some questions about the spiritual condition of our hearts. How's your marriage? How's your heart at work? What are the things that you're struggling to trust Jesus for? And maybe the, the two of you could even agree on a list of five questions. Every time we get together, we're going to have this conversation. I'm telling you, we need this more than we know. And it's one of the biggest missing gaps in discipleship. People are good at getting into large rooms. They're not even that bad at getting into small groups. But they're really poor at having this, this one-on-one, face-to-face, horizontal. Who is your Paul and who is your Timothy? And until you can answer that question as a disciple, it should haunt you. Who is your Paul? Who's pouring into you? Who is your Timothy? Who are you pouring into? Face-to-face, horizontal. Okay, so discipleship happens face-to-face, and it also happens shoulder-to-shoulder. And again, two categories under shoulder-to-shoulder. First, it happens shoulder-to-shoulder, facing in, facing inward. In verse 2, let's read verse 2 again of this text. Paul says to Timothy, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses Entrust to faithful men or women who will be able to teach others also. You can leave this up for a second, Ed. You know what I love about this verse is it's four handoffs of the gospel. And so Paul is not saying, Timothy, guard the gospel by keeping it hidden for yourself. He's saying, guard the gospel by handing it off to reliable people who can then hand it off to other people who then can hand it off to other people. Do you see the four handoffs? Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men or women, and then the faithful men or women teaching it to others, handing off the gospel and coming together. Henry Nowen in his book, In the Name of Jesus, said this, I have found over and over again how hard it is to be truly faithful to Jesus when I am alone. How truly hard it is to be faithful to Jesus when I am alone. An isolated Christian is a dead Christian. You get out there on your own and you simply aren't going to survive because God didn't create us to be isolated. God created us to be a part of his people. We need each other. We need to be a part of a people. Here's one thing to ask yourself if you're thinking, I don't need a people. In fact, I'll just, I'm doing quite fine on my own. Here's one question to ask yourself. Do you really think you can see everything about yourself on your own? Do you really think you don't have a single blind spot in your life, in your spiritual life? Do you really think that you don't need the other spiritual gifts that are present in this room right now? Do you really think that your spiritual gift isn't needed in this room? So we need to be engaged, leaning in, 
shoulder to shoulder. Now, when I say shoulder to shoulder facing in, what I'm talking about is what we're doing this morning. This is shoulder to shoulder. Now look, you're literally sitting shoulder to shoulder and you're facing in. And what I mean by in is you're facing inside really the church building. You're looking in at something. Now it can be in rows like we are this morning in large groups like Sunday mornings. It can also be in circles, small groups, women's ministry, men's ministry, youth. There's other small environments, large group. I think we need them both. Jesus had both. He, he created large group environments. You think of the Sermon on the Mount, but he obviously had a small group environment when you think of his 12, the 12 apostles, his disciples. And so we need them both. And showing up is not just, showing up doesn't mean you're shoulder to shoulder. You might be physically shoulder to shoulder, but you're not relationally shoulder to shoulder. Who are you connecting with? I, was, uh, I saw this recently on Twitter from a guy named Reggie Joyner. He was talking about measuring a church's success. And he said, don't measure your church's success by how many attend, but by how many are engaged in the life of others. That's a really successful church. Not just people who walk in on a Sunday morning, thank God for that, but how many people are actually engaged in each other's lives. Here's a challenge. I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk to the hospitality team about this next Sunday night, but you should all hear it. How do we move from a mindset of friendliness to friendship? Those are two different things. I, we are a friendly church. There's no doubt about it. That's a part of the DNA of my dad and my mom. We are a friendly, warm church. We generally are. But there's a difference between friendliness and friendship. People aren't just looking for friendliness. Friendliness will get them in the door and maybe keep them around for a little while. But what people need is not friendly experiences. They need friendships meaningful friendships. So when somebody visits our church and they've come two, three, four times, you know what my vision is for that? My vision for them would be that by that point, multiple people in our church have asked them to do something with them. They've invited them out to dinner. They've invited them out to lunch because we need to be involved in each other's lives, shoulder to shoulder, facing in. We do this on Sunday mornings so that we can celebrate the gospel and encourage each other, but we also need to do this in smaller environments. You know, the more Trinity grows, the bigger it gets. You can look around the room. Eventually, we're gonna have to go to multiple services. When we do that, it becomes harder to know everybody, and that'll be a hard shift for us as a church because for 30 years, we've been a church that really everyone pretty much knows each other. But if we're gonna fulfill our mission and reach this community and continue to build on the foundation that's been built here for 30 years, we're going to grow, amen? It's going to happen, and as it happens, we'll go to multiple services, and when that happens, it's gonna be increasingly important for you not just to be shoulder-to-shoulder in large groups, but to be shoulder-to-shoulder in small groups. And we don't currently run what some people think of when they think of small groups or one groups or cell groups or home groups. We don't currently run that. But there are other opportunities to be in small group environments. Tomorrow night, the woman will be here, I think it's 630 uh, they'll be right in the cafe tomorrow night at 6.30. If you're a woman and you're looking for a small group environment to connect with other ladies, you can do that. The men were here this last Thursday night, about a dozen of them here, having pizza and wings. Those sort of opportunities uh, we, we offer. We have grow classes on Sunday mornings. We have grow classes on Wednesday nights. If you really want to get plugged in, then serve. That's the best way to get plugged in. Join a ministry team and serve. We also have, coming up in November and December, dinner parties. And in two weeks, you're gonna be able to sign up for a dinner party. And since there's so many new faces, let me just pause and explain what dinner parties are. Dinner party is exactly what it sounds like. We gather in somebody's home, 15 or 20 people. We gather in their home and we just share a meal together. There's no other agenda. It's not a study. 
It's not a Bible study. It's not a small group. It's a everybody bring a dish, and let's just have a good time together. And so the, two, the first Sunday night in November and the first Sunday night in December, we're going to have dinner parties. You're going to sign up to attend both of those in the same home with the same group of people so you can get to know those people over two different meals. They run from five to seven. It's a very casual time, but we want people to get connected. And so we're doing, we have nine host homes and in two Sundays, you're going to meet the different hosts and you're going to have an opportunity to sign up. And so we have these things that we're trying to offer as a church so that we can get into small groups so we can be shoulder to shoulder facing him. By the way, this should also happen in your homes this shoulder-to-shoulder facing in. You shouldn't need the church to facilitate and program all your discipleship environments. Ideally, we gather once a week to celebrate. We have a few key ministries that we do, but ideally, the church of God is circling up on their own and just doing life together. But we do like to help you with that. And one of the ways we wanna help you is in your home. How many of you, um, well, I wanna ask you to raise your hand, but if you have a family, if you have children, especially in your home, it's a struggle I've had a personal struggle of finding a good devotional resource that I like to use with my children. Some of them are okay. Some of them aren't so great. But we've cre- we're creating one for you, okay? And so beginning today, we're going to be, I am writing a 52-week devotional through the Gospel of John. So every Monday, a new devotional will be posted on our church website and will be emailed to you through the uh, weekly emailer. We'll also have about 20 hard copies on the Info Center for those of you that maybe don't use email or are not internet savvy. And it gives the families a text to read, a teaching to read, and then there's some response questions that are broken down by age group. So if you have toddlers, there's questions for toddlers. If you have elementary age children, there's questions for them. If you have teenagers, there's questions for them. And if you're just, if you're an adult or a single adult or don't have children in your home, there's questions just for adults. And so you're going to go to this website. It's our trinityagchurch.org backslash free devo, free devo. And every Monday, you'll find a new devotional. When it's all said and done, a year from today, there'll be 52 devotionals that you can download. But here's the goal. We just want to resource you to get in your homes and be shoulder to shoulder facing in. Moms and dads, can I speak to you for a second? As a dad, your primary disciple-making environment is your home. And what are you doing to create environments in your home where you're helping your children understand the scriptures? Okay. Lastly, this morning, we'll close. So, Discipleship happens facing to face-to-face vertical, face-to-face horizontal, shoulder-to-shoulder facing in, and lastly, you probably could guess it, shoulder-to-shoulder facing out. Paul said to Timothy, you got to share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I didn't serve in the military. My dad served in the military. My grandfather served in the military. Many of you served in the military, and my, many of my friends serve in the military. I'm not an expert. Here's what I know, though. Soldiers, when they're really on mission, they're shoulder to shoulder, but they're not facing in, are they? They're not looking at each other. They're facing out. They're shoulder to shoulder, and they're facing out. And one of the key disciple-making environments in your life is how are you standing shoulder to shoulder with other people who love Jesus, facing out at our community to serve, to love, and to reach? What are you doing? Where, where is the willingness to live on mission, to commit our lives to the mission of God, to serve our community and to share the gospel with our community, to demonstrate the gospel and to declare the gospel? Because if we're only becoming disciples inside the church building, then we're not really living on mission, are we? 
Because the mission of God really is gathering us so that we can be scattered, right? Gathered to be scattered. How are you discipling your coworkers? How are you discipling your neighbors? And you might say, wait, 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 none of my coworkers are Christians. It doesn't matter. What's the definition of making a disciple? Live a life worth sharing and share it generously and intentionally. You can disciple people who don't know Jesus, yet what you're doing is you are discipling them to Jesus. And then once they place their trust in him, then you continue to disciple them in Jesus. Either way, discipleship was, was Jesus' command to us to go make disciples. He didn't say go make converts. Converts, that's the Spirit's work. That's God's work. You know you can't convert somebody, right? You can't convert someone. What do we do, though? We point them to Jesus. We live a life worth sharing, and then we share it intentionally and generously. Let me finish with this. Verse 7, Paul said to Timothy, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. This is my prayer for you this morning as we close. Think over everything I've said, and the Lord will give you understanding. The Lord will help you. So this morning, we're going to close just very practically by... I'm going to ask you to think through, what's my next step after this message? What is my next step? If you say, I really need to strengthen my face-to-face vertical relationship with Jesus, then don't wait. Start tomorrow. If you need help, talk to me. Talk to a leader in our church. We can help you come up with a plan. Maybe some of you say, you know, face-to-face horizontal, I don't have anybody that I meet with regularly who speaks into my life. Well, ask a friend. Say to a friend, would you be willing to, to speak into my life? Could we have conversations once a month that are devoted to discipling and strengthening one another? Maybe you say, I, I need to commit more to Sunday mornings to being shoulder to shoulder facing in, or I need to be part of a small group experience, or I need to connect with people at something like a dinner party or at the Sunshine Seniors dinner or talent show. What are those environments that you're going to connect in? And then shoulder to shoulder facing out, who are you inviting into your life? Who are you inviting into your home? What's about the next dinner party? Which one are you going to go to? And who are you going to invite with you? Because dinner parties are not just for people who call Trinity their home. We believe that dinner parties are a place that we should be able to bring our friends into to stand shoulder to shoulder alongside other people who follow and love Jesus.